Hey everyone, and welcome to the Bethlehem Church of Christ podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope that today's message encourages and inspires you and helps you on your journey to discover and follow the will of God. To obtain a typed outline of today's message, you can go to the show notes or the details page of your podcast platform. Today we'll be looking at a message around Christmas time that focuses on us and our priorities in the world and why it seems like our priorities and the world's priorities don't really match up. And that caused us to live in an upside down world. And now here's Tom Claiborne with his message called Upside Down World. Get your sermon notes page out and also turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. As we consider an upside down world and what our amazing God did about that upside down world. Back during the 14 year period when the church office was located in my house, my then three year old daughter Leah came into my office one day bounced around the room for a few minutes, touching some things and looking around. I paid very little attention, and she was soon gone. Only later did I notice something unusual in my office. My globe did not look right. There before me was Argentina pointing skyward like the Statue of Liberty, Now, if you know your basic geography, you realize that's a problem. The world was upside down. New York City was now on the West Coast, and L.A. was on the East Coast. Kentucky and South America were both north of Ohio, and Alaska was near the South Pole. Crazy. (laughs) But there's one consolation if you think about it. If the earth is upside down, that would mean that it is summer in Ohio today and maybe pushing 90 degrees. (laughs) But here's my real point. When the globe was upside down, everything on earth was affected, except, I guess, the equator. (laughs) Now, my young daughter was not the first to turn the world upside down. That first happened a very, very long time ago, and we read about it in Genesis 3. And since the fall of the human race in the Garden of Eden, everything has been affected. But tragically, the same is also true in our personal lives. When Jesus Christ is not the center of our life, everything is turned upside down. But the good news of Christmas is that God sent Jesus to turn our lives right in the back, or back in the right direction. Mary, the mother of Jesus, recognized that after an angel told her that she personally was going to give birth to the promised Messiah. And in her words of praise in Luke chapter 1, she hinted at how God was beginning at that very moment of her pregnancy with Jesus to turn things back over again with the virgin birth and the coming of the Messiah. Listen to four of those verses in Luke 1, starting at verse 50. 
She says of God and about this whole incident, His mercy extends to those who fear Him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with His arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. She was saying, in part, that God was beginning the process of reversing things, of reversing the curse of Genesis 3 through the baby in her womb. So this morning, I want us to celebrate what that means, that Jesus was reversing that curse. But first, we have to take a negative look. And sometimes I think it takes a negative look before we appreciate the positive. So let's look first at a distorted world. In other words, that's the result, and I want you to turn back to Genesis 2. A distorted world is the result of what happened when you and sin entered the picture. The fall of mankind changed everything. When mankind fell in the Garden of Eden, it changed everything. In Genesis 1 and 2, we see beauty and harmony and perfection. And when over and over in Genesis 1, it keeps saying, and God saw that it was good, and God saw that it was good. Each day it said that, and at the very end it said, he said it was very good. And that Hebrew word has the idea of is that everything was functioning as God intended. All the natural laws that God had built into the system were operating without hindrance up to that point. Humans were in a harmonious relationship with Creator God, and all was well. Now, to assure that things would remain that way, God gave Adam a blessing and a warning in Genesis 2, verse 15 and, 6, and 15 through 17. Says the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Now here's the paraphrase of that. God was saying, Adam, here is how you can show your love for me and keep things right side up in life, just doing what I say. But we know what happened in Genesis 3, the deception, the outright lie from Satan, the temptation, the human fall into sin, and the result was that things began changing very rapidly. In Genesis 3, in, in verses 8 through 13, I get it. my Bible's falling apart here, okay. <laughs> See, pages come out in my Bible now. Genesis 3, 8 says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. You see the problem already. This had never happened before. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Man had never been afraid before this moment. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you to not eat from the man said, the woman, <laughs> the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. 
curses and consequences. Things were no longer right. Things were no longer right side up. Sin broke the orderly system that God created. Things went haywire. Relationships were broken. The earth was harmed. And this world became a graveyard for the first time in history. It became what God had not intended. You know, when things are used as they're not intended to be used, there's a problem. A lady wrote in Reader's Digest about a particular Christmas, and she says, I had been wanting a beautiful shawl to wear with my winter dresses. So when I opened the present from my sister Wanda and saw that it was a white and silver shawl, I squealed with delight. She says, I love it. I, she told her sister when she saw her that evening, she goes, I wore it all morning. And her sister Wanda said, you wore it? It's a skirt for the Christmas tree. <laughs> you know, it's tragic and sometimes embarrassing when things are not used according to their intended purpose. And that's exactly what happened to this earth and to our lives when we did not use them in the way God intended. The world, as a result, is upside down. And there is now sin and disease and violence and natural disasters and abuse and death in this upside-down world. This upside-downness has varied sometimes in the, in the level of how bad or good it is throughout the ages, depending on men's and women's choices. But let me describe where I think it is right now and where it's been oftentimes in history. Love has been replaced with lust. It's an upside-down world. Forgiveness has been replaced with revenge. It's an upside-down world. Biblical correctness has been replaced with political correctness. God's Ten Commandments are deemed a threat to society. It's an upside-down world. Biblical grace has been shoved aside by cancel culture. It's an upside-down world. Dishonesty and deception are considered okay as long as certain elites in power say it is for the greater good. A Christian work ethic is mocked while laziness is rewarded. Biblical purity is mocked while sexual deviations are praised and promoted. It's an upside-down world. God's beautiful plan for male and female has been twisted and mocked and almost completely discarded. It's an upside-down world. The wise phrase, love people and use things, has become love things and use people. The world is upside down, and I could go on and on with that list, as you know. So what's the solution? What's the answer? Well, the answer is the same as it was 2,000 years ago. As a matter of fact, conditions were very much the same when Jesus came here 2,000 years ago. I want to read you something that I first read about 35 years ago, probably, in a church newsletter, where someone was describing what it was like in the culture when Jesus was born. Remember, this is 30-some years ago, writing about the first century when Jesus came. And I'll quote, The people were heavily taxed and faced every prospect of a sharp increase to cover expenses of an ever-expanding government. Moral deterioration had corrupted the upper levels of society and was moving into the broad base of the populace. Conformity was the spirit of the age. Government handouts were being used with increasing lavishness to keep the populace from rising up and throwing out the leaders. 
personal debt was spiraling upward in the midst of an inflated economy. Social life centered around the banquet and the pool. In such a time and amid such a people, a child was born to a migrant couple who had just signed up for a fresh uh, round of taxation and who were soon to become political exiles. End of quote. Written 30-some years ago, describing the time when Jesus was born, and it sounds like today. Jesus came to an upside-down world, very similar to ours, a distorted world. Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5, tells us this. It says, when the, time, the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. So God, and this is your second main point in your outline, God had a divine plan. God had a divine plan. The God who created all things had a plan for turning the world right side up again. So there's good news. As someone put it, and I love this quote, who better to help you put the pieces back together than the one who arranged them in the first place? Who better to help you put the pieces back together than the one who arranged them in the first place? Seeing the mess humans created, God said, okay, <laughs> let's try this again. I'm going to send my son. We're going to try this again. So God's divine plan was twofold. Point A, God's plan was to send a deliverer. God's plan to turn things back over was to send a deliverer. In Genesis 3.15, in that awesome and also terrifying chapter, where God's giving out the punishments and consequences of sin, he gives a promise. He speaks to Satan and says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. In other words, God was saying, I'm going to send a deliverer who's going to turn things back over the right way. And folks, the rest of the Bible, and I've said this many times from this pulpit, the rest of the Bible is a record of how God carried out his promise in Genesis 3.15. In the book of Exodus, from Egypt, that whole event pointed toward Jesus, the deliverer. The sacrificial system, all those animals being sacrificed, pointed to Jesus, the deliverer. The prophets, in their prophecies about him, pointed to Jesus, the deliverer. And in Luke chapter 1... Just before Jesus' birth, the Spirit of God prompted a man named Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, to say some amazing things about Jesus. And notice this is Zechariah saying this before Jesus is born. This is after his own son has been born, but he's not talking about his own son here. Starting in Luke 1, verse 68, he says, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and has redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our fathers and to remember his covenant, his holy covenant the oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. He was saying God is sending a deliverer and he's about to come. But God's divine plan was also to do something else. 
It was to make a point in the way he sent the deliverer. And I think that's a typo on your outline. It should be deliverer. <laughs> in other words, by how God sent Jesus, he was also making a point. Have you ever thought that God turned everything upside down when he sent Jesus so that he could make a point with it? He did everything in a strange, unusual way, even though we've gotten used to it because we've heard the story so much. But I want you to think about these three things. This is upside down, but it's how God chose to do it for a reason. Number one, a king in a manger. That is strange, that is unusual, that is unorthodox. What's wrong with that picture, a king in a manger? Well, it makes absolutely no sense if you think about it. All right, consider the, the very basic definitions of those terms, king and manger. King, a male ruler of a nation, a male sovereign, someone really important. Manger, a feeding trough, a box or trough to hold hay for animals to eat. Folks, those two things do not go together, <laughs> especially the king being in the manger. But Jesus, here he is, in Revelation 1.5, he's referred to as the ruler of the kings of the earth. It's the image of, of a throne and of servants and of lesser kings bowing down to him. That's Jesus, the king. Revelation 19, verse 11 and following, pictures Jesus on a white horse followed by the armies of heaven, and it calls him the king of kings and lord of lords, just like we sang a little while ago. And then in my favorite verse in all the Bible, in Revelation 17, 14, it says this about Jesus. They will make war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will, ever, will triumph over them because He's Lord of lords and King of kings, and with Him will be His called, chosen, and faithful followers. King Jesus. In that image, we see power and triumph and authority. That is the King that God the Father sent very humbly and had Him placed in a manger. So here's the question. Why in the world did God choose to do it that way? Why did he not send Jesus on a, in a, an impressive horse riding into Jerusalem with all these armies of heaven following him? Write this down on your outline. God was showing that he has different priorities than us. God has different priorities than us. We even see this principle in Jesus' own life as an adult. Folks, you read in the gospel, outward things were very unimportant to Jesus. The things we put so much attention on, he could care less about. Jesus did not care who had the fastest chariot or the biggest house. He could care less. He voluntarily shunned or gave up everything that our self-serving culture thinks is the mark of success today. In 2 Corinthians 8, 9, it says this of Jesus and us. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. So I ask you today, how rich are you in God's eyes and in the things that cannot be taken away? But there's another strange feature we see in the coming of Jesus. We see angels with shepherds. Luke chapter 2, verse 8 and following. Dwayne already read, I think, a portion of this. Luke 8, 2 through 11. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them. That is really silly and bizarre and crazy. All right? We heard it so much, we don't think it is anymore. 
An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. Verse 13, more angels show up, countless numbers of angels. Folks, that's very, very odd. That's very, very strange. See, we miss the significance of this because we've seen Christmas cards too long and we've seen Bible dramas and we have sung Christmas carols so long that we don't realize how strange it was that angels were with shepherds. Think about those two groups again, shepherds. One of the lowest classes of people in those days. They were migrants who slept with their animals and probably smelled like them. Think about them. Matter of fact, I've come up with a, a, a fragrance that we could name uh, after the shepherds. You know, the, the, all these perfumes and things sound like they have like a French name or something. I've come up with a name for the fragrance of the shepherds. Here it is. Do we have that? Toilet de sheep manure. Okay? Isn't that a great perfume? Toilet de sheep manure. That was the shepherds. That's probably what they smelled like. Now, who were the angels? The angels were special spiritual messengers of Almighty God. So here were God's mighty angels out in the field with dirty shepherds sniffing the toilet de sheep manure. That's very strange. So it begs the question, did these poor angels pick up the wrong map at the gas station and end up in the wrong place? I mean, why are they out there? Surely they really meant to go to Jerusalem, to the temple, and they were supposed to assist in the Christmas cantata in the temple. Wait, I think I figured it out. I think I figured out why the angels went to the wrong place. In the Bible, the angels were always referred to as men, and I bet they refused to stop and ask for directions. So they ended up seven miles south of Jerusalem, out in a dark field smelling toilet de sheep manure. No, it was not an accident. They were not lost. God deliberately sent them out to the smelly shepherds on purpose. So what was God trying to tell us in doing it that strange, very unorthodox way? What message was he trying to send in the way he sent the Savior? Well, here it is, right on your outline. God was showing that his ways are greater than ours. God was showing that his ways are greater than ours. That's what Isaiah says about God and his purposes in chapter 55, verse 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Folks, God sees the, the big full picture that we cannot see. He sees the reality behind the facade. He sees the light amidst the darkness and the opportunity amidst the problem. He sees the potential and the value even in the most unlikely person. So praise God and Merry Christmas because he does things differently. You see, in sending Jesus the way he did, God wanted to teach us something about who Jesus was and why he was coming and that no person is unimportant in God's eyes. God wanted you to understand that this morning, and that's why he sent angels to speak to shepherds. 
Again, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, we cannot see it too much, says this. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. That brings us to one final strange, strange, strange thing about the coming of Jesus, and that is that he was born to die. He was born to die. He came to die. Jesus was not forced to come here. <laughs> Read about a, uh, the birth of a new baby in a family, and they had a little boy that was a bit older. And the new baby one day is screaming like crazy. The older little boy is uh, getting more and more irritated and asks his mom, where did he come from? The mother says, he came from heaven. And the boy says, wow, I can see why they threw him out. <laughs> Folks, Jesus was not thrown out of heaven. He was not forced to go. He chose to come, and he was born to die. Now, in a sense, that's true of all of us. Ecclesiastes 3 says there's a time to be born, there's a time to die. But with Jesus, that odd phrase has a whole new dimension. John 3.16 says very plainly, you know, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. That's saying Jesus was born to die. Over in chapter 10, Jesus is talking about being the, the good shepherd. And in verse 11, Jesus says this, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus was born to die. On down to verse 17 and 18, Jesus says, The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life, only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. Jesus was born to die. It was God's divine plan. Jesus was not the victim of crucifixion. The cross was not some cruel accident. Jesus came here very deliberately for the purpose of dying for you and for me. He knew. There's a poem that asks a question to the baby. It says, a little baby in a manger nestled in a bed of hay, do you know what lies ahead as you're born on Christmas Day? Little baby in a manger having no place in the end, do you know the price you'll pay to redeem mankind from sin? Little baby in a manger destined for a cruel tree, giving up your life to offer pardon and peace and liberty. Little baby in a manger nestled in a bed of hay, do you know what lies ahead as you're born on Christmas Day? And I love how the poem answers it. Oh, love beyond all other loves, a love we cannot understand. You know and still you come to lay down your life for man. Little baby in a manger, nestled in a bed of hay, we praise you for the sacrifice begun as you're born on Christmas Day. Jesus was born to die. He knew exactly what he was doing. He knew exactly what he was doing, and he had you in mind. So what was God trying to tell us in that Jesus was born to die? Write this down. God was showing that his purpose is eternal and his love is limitless. So what's all that mean to us? Well, that's our third and quick point. We have a decisive opportunity. So here's God's amazing offer. This is God's amazing offer for you 
and for me, for everyone, even if we're wearing toilet de sheep manure. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. Jesus came so you, know, you and I can be a new creation and have the slate wiped clean in our life, something we could not do on our own. Everything Jesus gave up was for something that we would gain. Larry Farthing put it this way, and he's got scriptures for every one of these. I'm, I won't mention those, but listen to what he says of Jesus. He descended that we might ascend. He became poor that we might become rich. He was born so that we might be born again. He became a servant so that we might become sons. He, he had no home that we might have a home in heaven. He was hungry that we might be fed. He was thirsty that we might be satisfied. He was stripped that we might be clothed. He was forsaken that we might not be forsaken. He was sad that we might become glad. He was bound that we might go free. He was made sin that we might be made righteous. And finally, he died that we might live. See, God wants to take us from the rags and curses of an upside-down life and bring forgiveness and healing and wholeness. So what's your curse? What's your sin? What's your grudge? What's your struggle right now in life? What's your upside-down situation which can't be changed through human power alone? All of us have those, those upside-down issues that we, we can't on our own do and change and take care of. Folks, Jesus came to turn things back over in our lives. And that becomes our amazing opportunity. An opportunity he gives every one of us. But hear me, God will not bring that about against our will. God says to us, here's my son, here's my offer, but he has never and he will never force you or me to accept him. He didn't force Adam and Eve to live a certain way. It had to be their choice. But like the way Jesus came, his plan seems backward or upside down. If you think about it, what the Bible tells us to do to accept Jesus and to make him our Lord seems upside down. Look what he said in Mark chapter 8. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, so his own followers and others, and here's what he says to them. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. <laughs> deny themselves. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Jesus said we must lose before we can gain we must give away to have, and we must submit to him to be free. When we become Christians, we give up control of our life. And that's the very reason a lot of people in the world are not Christians today. It's part pride, part a lot of other things, but it's I don't want to give up control of my life. But for the people who truly trust him, and truly have the courage <laughs> and say, I'm going to trust him with my life. In other words, we're trusting someone who can do a whole lot better job with our life than we can. 
But in so doing, when we do that, when we finally get to that point, Jesus begins to turn our life over again and make it right side up. But have you noticed what we try to do with whatever that issue is in our life that it's kind of upside down? Jesus starts turning it this way, and we go, well, I kind of like it a little bit back this way. And then he pushes it a little further, and, and we fight back, and we, we, we slide into that attitude or sin or whatever again. And, and uh, sometimes we think, well, I'll go, I'll go most of the way, Jesus, okay? I don't want, you know, like all the way, you know, that's, that's kind of radical and, and extreme, but I'll go this far. Jesus says, no. <laughs> it's either this way or it's this way. And I want you hot or cold. Uh, so every day we've we got this battle going on of him trying to turn stuff right side up in our life, and we're trying to shove it back a little bit. Not all the way. You know, we want to have good appearances and everything. But it's this battle, and only you or I get to decide. I'm going to leave this halfway because I want to think about where we are on that continuum. <laughs> See, my point is it's time to let go. It's time for a change. It's time for a new start. It's time for true faith, a faith that if it's there, we will openly confess. It's time for true repentance to say, I'm going to let him turn me all the way over, all the way, every area. See, that naturally follows true faith. And it's time for a total submission and makeover, which is pictured so beautifully as we submit our lives in that burial, that dying act called baptism which takes a lot of submission and a lot of courage, a lot of boldness to say, I'm going to let him completely turn me over the way he wants me. I'm going to quit fighting the back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, and I'm going to let him turn me right side up. Stay at the bottom of your page, and we're going to sing a song to decide what we're going to do about God's amazing opportunity. Here's the sentence. Here's the sentence. Can you really say this? I will die <laughs> to really live. Most important thing we can say, I will die to really live. I'm not going to fight with him anymore. I'm going to let him turn me all the way over to where my life needs to be. Submission. Submission. Christmas Sunday we call this. So still got two more Christmas services to go. But I say right now, today, in light of the things we've talked about, today is a really great time for you and me to let him turn things right side up in our life. Maybe that's an attitude. Maybe that's an area of our life. Maybe it's for the first time to completely say, I belong to you. I want to make you Lord and Savior. And that has to be in that order. Lord first, then Savior. And I'm going to let you control my life from here on out. We're prepared. If you want to make that decision and water's warm back here, we can do that. If you need to re recommit yourself to that decision, maybe you made years ago or decades ago, what better day than today to say, here's my gift Here's my Christmas gift to the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to the Bethlehem Church of Christ podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and think others can benefit from it, we encourage you to share it on social media, subscribe to our podcast, or leave us a rating and review on the podcast platform you use. You can also connect with us online at Bethlehem505.org or find us on Facebook. Please join us next time as we each seek to understand God's word and follow his son, Jesus Christ.